you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 22, the writer calls this book a word of exhortation. That's the exact phraseology used in Acts 13.15 to describe a sermon. So Hebrews is not written in letter form, it's written in sermon form. It's really a written sermon. And in verse 22, like a typical preacher, even though his sermon takes up 13 chapters, he calls it brief. And in verses 20 and 21, like a typical preacher, he closes his sermon with prayer. He gives a benediction. A recent Gallup poll found that 90% of Americans pray. What's interesting is that in that same poll, only 86% said they believe in God. So that means more people pray than believe in God. Makes me wonder what some of those prayers sound like. But that's not really important because I'm more concerned about what your prayers sound like and what my prayers sound like. And I'm guessing that we would all admit that we would like to pray more and pray better. So this morning, I want us to dissect this prayer at the end of Hebrews. And to do so, I want to ask four simple questions about this prayer in verses 20 and 21. Number, number one, who are we asking? When we pray, who are we addressing? Now, this is an important question. I know you know the Sunday school answer to that question. But my question is more this. Who do you perceive God to be? You see, I think that there's a direct correlation between how I pray and who it is that I think I'm praying to. I think there's a direct correlation between how much I ask and who it is that I think I'm asking. The book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's better than, better than, better than, better than. It's showing us how great our God is. And the application is given in a couple passages. In chapter 4 and verse 16 it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And in chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, Therefore, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You see, when I understand who God is and what He has done for me in Jesus, I want to draw near. That's why I think it's a good idea to start our prayers with adoration. Begin our prayers by talking about who God is and all that He's done because as we do that, we not only give God praise, but we remind ourselves of who it is that we're talking to. And that's what the writer does here. Notice verse 20. He says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you. 
You say, well, Dan, that doesn't even sound like a prayer. Well, maybe that's because we need to learn more about prayer. It's definitely a prayer because if you look at the end of verse 21, he ends with, Amen. It may not sound like a lot of our prayers. A lot of our prayers are, Dear Lord, gimme, gimme, gimme. But he starts out this prayer. In fact, he spends the entire first half of this prayer talking about God. Who He is. And what He's done. And the writer essentially says in verse 20, describing God, that He is the God who has provided our salvation. And I want to just take a few moments this morning and pick out six aspects of our salvation that God has provided for us in verse 20. First of all, God has provided the peace. He addresses God in verse 20 as the God of peace. I love that title. Because that's something we desperately need. And it only comes from Him. In fact, there are two aspects of peace that we need. Number one, we need peace with God. You say, well, I don't need peace with God. I'm not at war with Him. Well, the Bible says you are. The Bible says in Romans 5.10 that we were enemies. You say, but Dan, I'm not fighting against God. In fact, I ignore Him most of the time and we get along just fine. You know, I ignore Osama bin Laden most of the time. But we're still at war. See, the Bible tells us that war with God is not just about who you're fighting. It's about who you're embracing. James 4.4 says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. We were all born into this world in the enemy camp and we are embracing the world system that is opposed to God. So how does this get resolved? How do we establish peace with God? Well, the answer is we can't establish it. We can't set up peace talks with God. We can't negotiate peace. It has to be initiated by God. And that's why it's so exciting when the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God reconciled us to Himself through Christ. That word reconcile literally means to change or to exchange. He changed us from enmity to friendship. And I love the way Paul put it in Colossians 1.20. He says, He made peace through the blood of His cross. You see, when you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, He reconciled you to God and He made peace with Himself. But we also get something else. Not only do we get peace with God, we get the peace of God. Paul tells us in Philippians 4.7 that the peace of God is something that guards your heart and mind if you're a believer. It's something that you experience internally. In fact, Paul says in that same verse that it's a peace that surpasses all comprehension. 
You see, it guards your mind, but you can't get your mind around it. You can't understand it. It's a peace that you cannot explain. You can only experience. You say, well, why can't I comprehend that peace? Well, the answer is, it's because it's God's peace in you. You can't comprehend the peace of an infinite God with a finite heart and mind. Jesus said in John 14.27, Peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you. See, it's not a 1960s hippie kind of peace. It's not a peace that I can sort of meditate into and say, mm-hmm. It's God's peace in me. And you know how you can tell that you've got God's peace? Well, Jesus tells us in John 14.27, right after saying, My peace I give to you, He says, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, the opposite of peace is a troubled and fearful heart. So, you know you've got the peace of God when you've got an untroubled and a fear-free heart. So, if you're a believer, you have peace with God and you have the peace of God because He is the God of peace. Now, I don't know about you, but that truth makes me want to draw near to Him in prayer. Second thing he's provided for our salvation is the protector. Look again at verse 20. You see that phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep? This is the only time in Hebrews where Jesus is referred to as our shepherd. But that's a metaphor that is often used of him in Scripture. In fact, in John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd who would lay down His life for the sheep. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, points out that domestic sheep are some of the most helpless animals in the world. They literally cannot survive without a shepherd. They need the shepherd to protect them from predators, to lead them to green pasture, to lead them to clean water. In fact, he points out that sheep can even get stuck on their backs with their legs flailing in the air like a turtle. And if the shepherd doesn't come and turn them over, they can actually die in that position. Someone has pointed out that sheep disprove the evolutionary dogma of the survival of the fittest. You know what the Bible calls us? Sheep. And I think that's to point out what should be obvious, but what we often deny. And that is, we can't survive without the Good Shepherd. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer steps up the adjective from the Good Shepherd to the Great Shepherd. He has referred to church leaders in verse 
17 as those who keep watch over your souls. That's a shepherding analogy. But even the best leaders at their best are imperfect shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd. You know what makes Him the great shepherd? He doesn't lose any of His sheep. Jesus said in John 6.39, Of all that He has given Me, I lose nothing. He said in John 10.28, I give eternal life to My sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. When God provides that kind of protection, it makes me want to draw near to Him in prayer. Third thing that He provides for us in our salvation is the price. What is the price of our salvation? Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews 9.22 says without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If you look in verse 20, you'll find both of those words used here. You see the word dead and you see the word blood. The writer told us in Hebrews 10.4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But you see, what those sacrifices couldn't do, God did. I read it earlier. Colossians 1.20 says, He made peace through the blood of His cross. Jesus, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. You see, the God of peace has provided the way for us to have peace with Him by sending the Great Shepherd and putting Him to death for our sins. And you know what the conclusion is? Paul told us in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to pray to. And then the fourth thing that God provides is the proof Look at verse 20 again. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. God did not just sacrifice His Son. He brought Him up from the dead. And the resurrection was the confirmation that God had accepted Jesus' death as the payment for your sins and for my sins. You see, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are still lost. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15-17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Christian faith. You see, if you can disprove the resurrection, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15-32, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you might as well live for all the pleasure that you can grab in this life. But the witness of the apostles 
who were transformed from dejected and disillusioned men after the crucifixion into bold witnesses was that Jesus died and rose again. They saw Him. They touched Him. They ate with Him. And they gave their lives to tell people what they had seen and heard. If the resurrection is just the wishful thinking of a bunch of deluded men, then Christianity is false and you can throw your Bible away and go home. But if these witnesses spoke the truth, then Jesus is Lord and your sins are forgiven and you will one day rise as well. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. I don't know about you, but that makes me excited about drawing near to this kind of God. Fifth thing He provides is the promise. Look again in verse 20. You see that phrase? The eternal covenant. Now what's the eternal covenant? Well, that's the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about over and over again in this book. A covenant is basically an agreement between two parties. Today, we would call it a contract. You see, we have a contractual agreement between God and us. Now, most of us read contracts rather carefully. When I get a contract, I have to get my glasses out and I read the fine print. You want to hear some of the fine print of the covenant God has made with you and me? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, God says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Pretty exciting covenant. Let me tell you some things that make me even more excited about this covenant. Number one, this covenant is unconditional. The old covenant, the law, was conditional. It was an if-then covenant. God said, if you don't obey Me, then you'll die. If you don't obey Me, then the contract is null and void. But the new covenant is unconditional. There are no conditions. There are no ifs in the covenant. Read Hebrews chapter 8 that gives us the details of the new covenant. And you'll notice God continually saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it never says, if you. It's unconditional. It's like the Abrahamic covenant, which was also unconditional. And to underline the unconditional nature of that covenant, God established it with Abraham while he was asleep. You see, Abraham had no part in it. It was all God's doing. And you have no part in the new covenant. It's all God's doing. And that's why verse 20 talks about the blood of the covenant. That's the only condition. The blood of the covenant. And it's already been fulfilled. It's already been paid in full. And then the second thing that excites me about this covenant is not only that it's unconditional, but that it's eternal. You see that in verse 20? It's the eternal covenant. When will this covenant expire? Never. 
You think a lifetime guarantee is good? This is an eternal lifetime guarantee. This is a covenant that will never end and can never be broken. And that's why God can say, their sin I will remember no more. You may not be able to forget some of those things, but God has. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God that I want to pray to. And then finally, God provides the person. At the end of verse 20, it identifies the great shepherd of the sheep as Jesus our Lord. Jesus is His human name. It points to His humanity. As a human being, He could die on the cross as the substitute for human beings. Lord is a title for the sovereign God. It points to Jesus' deity. As God in human flesh, Jesus' death could do what no other death could do. It could permanently take away our sins. See, Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. And that is the uniqueness of His person. There is no other like Him. He is God with nail-scarred hands. And if you have placed your faith in Him, you can say with the writer of Hebrews in verse 20, He is not just Jesus the Lord, He is Jesus our Lord. And because of the uniqueness of His person, we're told in Hebrews 4 that that Jesus is our sympathetic High Priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. So whatever you are going through, Jesus has already experienced that and more. And I love that truth because when we pray, we don't come to a God who's up in heaven and we don't have to say, God, you don't understand what I'm going through. Let me try to explain it to you. We come to Him and He's already been here. He's experienced all that we experienced. He's experienced far more than we've experienced. And He understands our weaknesses. So who are we asking when we pray? He is the God who has given you the ultimate peace both with Him and in you. The ultimate protector, the great shepherd, He has given the ultimate price, His blood. He has given the ultimate proof, His resurrection. He has given the ultimate promise, eternal forgiveness. He has given the ultimate person, Jesus our Lord. Now, I think if our prayers started more like this, describing who God is and what He's done for us, I think we'd pray more. Don't you? Second question. What are we asking? Look at verse 21. Equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Now, in the original language, this is expressing a desire, a request. The the sense is, may the God of peace equip you. See, this is the supplication part of the prayer. And there are two facets to this request. Number one, he's asking that God equip you in every good thing to do His will. 
Now that Greek word for equip is used in Matthew 4.21 of mending torn nets. It was used outside of the Bible in the first century to describe putting a bone back into place. It means to restore something so that it can realize its intended purpose. As sinners, we're wounded and broken. And by our own efforts, we could never put our lives back together in order to be useful to God. But what we can't do, God can. He mends the torn places in our lives. He sets the broken bones so that they will heal. And He doesn't put your life back together so you can live for yourself. He puts your life back together, as it says here, so that we can in every good thing do His will. That's what we ought to be asking for. You know what you're doing when you do God's will? You're being like Jesus. In John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. My appetite, the thing I'm hungry for, is to do the will of Him who sent me. So really, this prayer request, or the first part of it, is simply this. He's praying that we would be more like Jesus. And then there's a second aspect to the request. And that is, may God work in you that which is pleasing in His sight. Some of you are recent parents of a newborn baby. Can you imagine bringing your little bundle of joy home from the hospital and carrying him from room to room and explaining, uh, there's the refrigerator. Help yourself whenever you're hungry. That's the bathroom. I mean, it's all there for you. The, the, the sink, the toilet, the shower. This is your bedroom. Uh, the only thing we ask is that you make your bed every day and clean your sheets once a week. And listen, if, if you ever need anything, let us know. We'll see what we can do. No. You see, earthly parents would never think of doing that, and neither does God. But see, God goes further than any human parent can because God equips us or restores us or mends us, and then it says He works in us. He doesn't just shepherd us from the outside. He empowers us from the inside. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, right after Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he adds this, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, did you notice something about this prayer? God has already done or has already promised to do everything in it. He has already done everything in verse 20. When it comes to the request in verse 21, He has already promised that He's going to do all the things that are being asked for. Now, what's that tell me about prayer? It tells me that prayer is not just about me getting what I want from God. Prayer is about me 
fitting into what God wants for me. You see, he's asking for things God has already said he wants to do in my life. And so I'm asking him to do that. I'm really giving him the freedom to do that in my life. I am surrendering to him, saying, God, yes, you do in me what is pleasing to you. You allow me to do your will and you work in me to give me the power to accomplish that. Great prayer. Then thirdly, how are we asking Look near the end of verse 21 and you'll see that phrase, through Jesus Christ. We saw that same phrase in verse 15 and I noted that everything in the Christian life is through Him. Ephesians 1.4 says we are saved because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.3 says He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I read this week where someone went through and counted all the times in Paul's letters where he uses this phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, and they counted 169 times. Every blessing you enjoy is because you are in Christ. What a great thought. We are inseparably linked to Him. We are in Him. And because we're in Him, His death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. His holiness is our holiness. His riches are our riches. Imagine you're a little orphan in Africa and Bill Gates goes over there and adopts you. And you become His one and only child and His one and only Heir. Suddenly, all the riches of the richest man in the world are yours because you're in his family. Well, that's nothing compared with what God has done for you. Because the riches of Bill Gates are nothing compared to God's riches in Jesus Christ. Bill Gates' riches will perish, God's riches will endure throughout eternity, and they are yours. In Jesus Christ. Romans 8.17 says, As God's children, we are fellow heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Him. Whatever He inherits, we inherit. And if that isn't enough, He also made this promise in John 14.13. He said, Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, that's how we are to ask through Jesus. And then the fourth and final question is why are we asking? Why are we asking? And I see two reasons in our passage. Number one is God's glory. You see the end of verse 21? He says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, grammatically, that phrase, to whom, may refer back to either God or to Jesus, and Greek scholars are divided over which is preferable. But it really doesn't matter, since the Father and the Son are one, they both get the glory. As Revelation 5.13 puts it, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. See, the point is that salvation 
is not about me. And the Christian life is not about me. It's all about God's glory and the glory of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who gave Himself for my sins. And if you are not living daily to glorify God for His great salvation in Jesus Christ, you are living for an insignificant purpose. Since verse 20 says, He did it all for our salvation. Verse 21 says, He does it all for our sanctification. And since it's all through Jesus, who should get the glory? That's one reason to pray. But there's a second reason. Not only God's glory, but the second reason is our need. See, I think prayer is a barometer of our dependence upon God. I think prayer is a direct reflection of how much we think we need Him. In verses 18 and 19, the writer acknowledged his need by asking his readers to pray for him. And now in verses 20 and 21, he acknowledges their need by praying for them. You know, one of the strange ironies of human existence is that all of us are weak and needy. But we go around projecting this impression that we're strong and self-sufficient. Don't we? We're all so needy. We're all so weak. But we like to walk around and kind of project this image that we've got it all together. And obviously, that's because of pride. And we're kind of like the emperor in that familiar fable. You remember where the emperor got his clothes and the guy said, well, you know, I'm going to give you this new set of clothes. The only issue is that stupid people can't see the clothes. So the emperor didn't want to admit that he couldn't see the clothes because he'd be admitting that he's stupid. So he struts down the street showing off the emperor's new clothes when in reality he was naked. That's the way we are a lot of times. We're strutting down the street acting like we've got it all together. And the reality is everybody's looking at us and saying, man, that guy's got some problems. He's got big needs. Every one of us is physically frail, yet we walk through life acting like we're going to live forever. The reality is that just one flu bug, just one cancerous cell, just one accident can take us out. Every one of us is financially frail and needy. We say, you say, well, Dan, I've got adequate investments and properties. I own this and that. I've got all my future needs laid out. I've got a job with seniority and security and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure that's what Saddam Hussein said about a year before we invaded Iraq. Sure, he said, I got all this stuff and all this security and now it's gone. And He's gone. Jesus warned us in Luke 12 about the man who thought he had achieved financial security and he had those big financial plans for the future. 
And God demanded His soul that very night. We are needy people. We are just one bad day away from being where Job was. And we have absolutely no control over whether that might happen. Church at Laodicea thought they had it all together. They said in Revelation 3.17, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And Jesus said, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We've got it all together. And Jesus said, you've got nothing together. We are needy people. You know, the irony of the situation is that even though we like to view ourselves as having it together, even though we don't, the irony is that if we would just see ourselves as God sees us, if we would just recognize our desperate need for Him and cry out to Him, He would flood us with His abundant blessings. Mary said something interesting in Luke chapter 1 and verse 53. Speaking of God, she says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. When we come to God hungry, He fills us. When we think we're rich and don't need God, we go away empty-handed. Are you hungry today? Are you needy today? Or are you saying, I'm rich. I'm satisfied. See, the good news is that the only requirement for receiving God's abundant blessing is to come to Him desperate and needy and ask Him for mercy. Because He delights to provide for those who rely on Him. So whether you're like the publican in the temple who was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Or whether you find yourself today like Job sitting in the ashes. Or whether you're like Peter sinking in the waves. Would you bring your need to Him today? Would you like Peter... Cry out to Jesus.